0: Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. And look, we all care about equality. We want America to be a more equal country. But how do we achieve that? How do we actually make it happen when there are so many forces and so many people who are fighting against it? Well, often we do it through the courts right? The courts have incredible power in our political system. Heck, they have their own entire branch of government. And when they make big decisions about, say, school integration, abortion or marriage equality, there's always a chunk of the American population that's going to be, well, pissed off about it. Right. That's going to fight back. That's going to say, hey, fuck you, Supreme Court. I disagree with you. And now I'm mad. And now look, in many of those cases, those people are wrong. But, uh, Here's the problem. It's not like the Supreme Court's decisions are backed up by an army of robed warriors and enforcing their constitutional analysis city by city, block by block. Courts rely on our societal belief in their authority. They actually can't just weigh the evidence and render a decision as much as we think that that's what they do. Chief Justice John Roberts is not only thinking about the Constitution when he writes an opinion, he has to think about how it's going to play into the vibe of the American public, how people are going to take the decision. He has to think about how the decision will maintain or reduce the court's priestly aura because it is that very insubstantial aura that gives it what power it has. So that means that despite the lip service to dispassionate adjudication, courts are actually very political. They have to think about and respond to that portion of the population that's going to be pissed off by their decisions. And that has massive ramifications on the fight for equality in this country. Because of the forces throughout American history that have fought against equality, racial equality, gender equality, equality of sexual orientation, and others, it's often been left to the courts to right wrongs such as segregation or marriage discrimination. And as our guest today, the constitutional scholar Robert Tsai argues, the politics of the court, the fact that the court is an inherently political organization, as much as we may not think it is, that fact means that activists need to be thoughtful about how they argue their cases. He examines how the fight for equality through the courts has worked through American history. And it turns out that seeking equality through arguments about equality, going up and saying, we need to make this change because it is unequal and we need equality. Well, it turns out that that's not always the most effective route to go, no matter how right it is. Why is that? Well, one issue is that arguing directly for equality means that the court has to decide that a group arguing against equality are more or less bigots, right? (laughs) say, Okay, these people are being discriminatory, racist, sexist, bigots. And if that's a huge part of the population, like, say, white Americans were in the Jim Crow South, Well, that can make the court less likely to decide in favor of equality because they're worried about offending those people and reducing the legitimacy of the court in their eyes. Or say, if a newly elected president makes a bigoted decision supported by his bigoted supporters, the court might be hesitant to make a decision casting stern moral judgment on all of them because that is a recipe for the court losing its mystic authority. Now, I'm not saying these are proper considerations for the court, far from it, but this is the reality of how the Supreme Court thinks when it's making a decision and the court is who you need to convince so, Tsai argues that along the long road to greater equality for Americans, it makes sense for activists to shift the terms of the debate. Rather than focusing just on equality, which is going to require making a big moral judgment against a huge part of the population, you might for instance focus on a different issue such as fairness. Fairness is uh, it's a lot like equality, but it's a little bit different. The framing of fairness takes the focus off who is and who isn't a bigot and puts the focus instead on the shape of our institutions. You can build consensus and maybe notch a court win by, say, arguing a bureaucracy or a procedure is not fair. Rather than that, a big chunk of the American population and one political party are morally in the wrong. And in difficult political times, like, for instance, uh, like right now, uh, a fairness argument might help you advance equality. And that doesn't mean that it's more moral or more right or even the actual basis for you to be trying to make this change. It just might be a little bit more strategic and let you make that change a little bit more smoothly, right? Because at the end of the day, hey, as long as the change is made, that's what we care about. Tsai calls this kind of activism practical equality, and he wrote a book about it by the same name. I've got so much more to ask him about it. So with that, please welcome Robert Tsai, professor of law at American University's Washington College of Law. Uh, Hey, Robert, thank you so much for being on the show. It's a pleasure to be with you, Adam. So you've written a book about equality and how we achieve it. Uh, equality is something that uh, I think all Americans are interested in, but uh, the road to achieving it is rockier than we might often want it to be. Uh, tell me about your view about it. How, how does your view differ from uh, from the average American conception on, the, on this issue?
1: You know, I, my view is 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 very much informed by uh, by by studying history, uh, studying how um, we as Americans have actually uh, struggled mightily uh, with trying to enforce this idea of equality. You know, if, when you talk to people on the street, uh, everyone certainly agrees um, about the importance of equality, but it turns out that in reality, we, we really struggle um, in getting it, getting that work done. And in my book, I, I basically point to a number of factors for why that's, uh, that's the case. It's certainly true that we have a very different views about what equality is all about. But even more than that, I think that there are some practical consequences. In other words, that many of us are um, unwilling to live with a number of the consequences that would flow from having to enforce equality. And so, Hmm. um, you know, I can give you a few examples of this. Yes, please. Uh, But uh, but, you know, one example um, uh, comes from the fight over um, same-sex education at uh, the Virginia Military Institute. That's probably the best example. Uh, and uh, in that institute they had uh, for years uh taught uh generations of uh, of men only uh what it means to be a citizen and a soldier um and um they thought that uh, women simply couldn't kind of um endure the the special form of education that um that they practiced um and um they thought that if a single woman was allowed into the institution would absolutely destroy their traditions. <laughs> it would absolutely force them to change, right, uh, yeah. uh, the, the institution. And this is an example of what I'm talking about in the book, that uh, they simply weren't willing to live with with any of the consequences of uh, having to sort of abide by the the demands of equality. And we can go from situation to situation. That's just one of the more dramatic ones. Wait,
0: so, so walk me through that a little bit more because to me it sounds like the the consequences, I don't know this particular story. So just based on what you told me, to me, it sounds like those consequences are are a fantasy that like, oh, if we start teaching a woman, a society will crumble down around our heads. It sounds very similar to, well, if you let a man and a man get married, people are going to go marry dragons and broomsticks or right. whatever. Like it's that sort of catastrophic thinking, which, you know, my experience in reality has been that that does not happen. Uh, And that, so I, I hear you describe those people and I'm like, okay, those people are wrong. So, and I can understand why that's difficult in order to uh, convince them of their wrongness. But, uh, but I'm wondering if you, if you can unpack a little bit what you mean about, about the consequences.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, You're absolutely right. You know, the example you gave as well, let's imagine all these horrible things that might flow from that. And sometimes the problem is what you've described, which is uh, a kind of uh, overactive imagination. Um, right. That if we just do this one thing, then all these other things will flow from that. So we can't do this one thing, um, yeah. um as a way of stopping those other uh, terrible things. So sometimes it's an overactive imagination, but sometimes it's a failure of imagination. So, uh, in the VMI case that, that I uh, started with, they can't imagine the possibility even that there would be enough women, uh, young, young women growing up in that state who even want to go through this process, right. to, mm-hmm. to to dream of being a soldier in this state and kind of leading our country in this way. Because one of the things they point to is, look, there aren't very many women who who, who sort of cried out about this and, and complained. So why should we change our institutions even just a little bit uh, to meet a non-existent demand? So that's a failure uh, of imagination uh, um, that sometimes grips people's minds as well. And so these are ways you're describing that,
0: uh Americans have pushed back against equality is that what you mean or have have been unwilling to cross the threshold uh, of equality and I don't think that's something that that I'm I'm familiar with as as an American like I've experienced that in the for the civil rights movements that I've been alive for like the gay rights movement is the most profound one I think to happen in my time and we've also had you know an awakening of uh, you know other other movements you know in the last few years uh there's been black lives matter and so many others that have that have like fought for equality uh in individual ways and of course we've experienced pushback along with all of those um but uh we also have this narrative of you know uh I'm gonna butcher the the long arc of history right the long arc of history bends towards justice right I remember I think I remember the uh president Obama saying that a couple times <laughs> with a with a a far-off look in his eye of of you know, hope and optimism. Um, do you do you share that general view of uh, how we move towards equality that like, hey, you know, there's stumbles across the way. you always get a little pushback, but hey, we always move in the right direction, and that's the right side of
1: history. Uh, I don't. Uh, that's a very famous um, uh, quote. um it, it preexisted uh, martin Martin Luther King's uh, use of it, uh, but but he's he's the one who. Uh, use it in his letters and speeches, um, and of course, um, kind of broadcast it more widely, and and that's kind of how Obama uh, picks it up. I, I think it's it's too wiggish uh, a, a view of of history that that we're always moving in this kind of enlightened direction. Um, it, instead, my, my take on um, on on our actual history is is while there has been some progress, there there are always some setbacks, uh, mm-hmm. and at times there can be even. Uh, major blowback. Uh, for instance, um, everyone now knows that uh, same-sex couples are able to access marriage, but but most people forget that the very first court to actually hand down a decision requiring equality in that context was the Supreme Court of Hawaii. Uh, what happens next is, uh, is that the voters of Hawaii uh, disagree with the decision, and mm. then they, uh, through um, kind of a referendum process, end up overturning Uh, that state, uh, that uh, that state Supreme Court decision. And then the backlash doesn't stop there. In the next few years, what we have is we have a bunch of jurisdictions kind of preemptively passing these uh, state DOMAs, the Defense of Marriage Act, right, that kind Mm -hmm. of um, sweep across the country. Even even in those places where there isn't a significant uh, push for uh, recognition of same-sex marriage, they're kind of doing this preemptively. Uh, and then this eventually kind of convinces President Clinton to pass the federal Defense of Marriage Act, and this is a this is a huge setback. Uh, once we have a federal law uh, that basically um, uh, defines marriage as uh, strictly between a man and uh, a woman, there are a whole bunch of ramifications for this, right, for uh, taxes and 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 all these other kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, and and so that's my example of how sometimes. Um, uh, it, a step forward at the wrong time perhaps or maybe a, a fragile time can sometimes lead to a major setback that requires much more mobilization to overcome
0: uh i see and and so it you're sort of making the point that hey that setback uh it's not necessarily just a speed bump it can it can actually be a real setback that that hurts people and can last for a long time uh absolutely I, I think about we've talked on this show before about uh, and this is, I think, a really, really macro version of maybe what you're talking about. Tell me if it fits in with your framework. But um, we've talked about the reconstruction years when uh, black Americans in the first few years after the Civil War, uh, you know, uh, were given uh, fought for and received like a huge number of rights. Uh, and, uh, you know, in the South, were serving as uh, congresspeople. Right. Uh, voting rights were really widespread a lot of education and the backlash was was so sharp. Um, The backlash to Jim Crow was so sharp and sudden. And as opposed to the ones that you're talking about with in the gay rights movement, where, okay, hey, we had 10 years where we had to keep fighting and then we won, you know, Uh, that lasted a century in the case of the post reconstruction years that that we abolished slavery, uh then bestowed all these rights and then they were taken away for literally a century um and so for those folks in the middle of that century it might not have felt like the long arc of history uh was bending <laughs> in the in the right direction it took a it took an extremely long time um and yeah that's something that we should we should think about and and honor when we're when we're talking about these struggles and not just sweep under the rug and say oh no hey the long arc of history will take care of us
1: Right. Um, I think that's a pretty, pretty good um, historical example to think about, because, um, you know, a lot of people don't um, don't know or don't remember that um, the the first moment of a kind of, you know, biracial coalition of people governing themselves happens for that first time uh, during the, you know, at the end of the Civil War, as you described. And you're right, you know, and Eric Foner is really great about this and others who've worked in, in, in his Kind of shadow, but um, you know, they're African Americans um, who hold offices um, and making decisions in a way that we we still haven't seen to this day um, because of the backlash that happens. Now, one of the things to keep in mind is that part of the backlash that occurs then are not only explicit things um, uh, limiting uh, in very explicit ways notions of equality, but also some like kind of nefarious ways of restricting Mm -hmm. equality. Um, like curfew laws, um, restrictions of um, pro-equality speech, pamphlets—they—they um, uh, uh, they expand uh, the disenfranchisement uh, of felons, which, uh, on its face, isn't about um, isn't about black people or white people or anybody else. But everybody knows that that's what that's about. Um, yeah. And so then they use the criminal law, of course, to funnel. Um, a lot of African Americans into the um, criminal justice system. Um, and then they use these race neutral laws to, to take their votes away. So, um, so, so I draw on a little bit of this part of American history um, just to illustrate that there can be a, a variety of ways in which people's um, equal equality rights can be negatively impacted, right? Um, they can take away your speech rights and make it harder for you to advocate for equality. Um, they can treat you in cruel ways through the criminal justice system uh, um, uh, in ways that they don't treat other people, right? Uh, and they could, they could um, uh, restrict your voting rights, uh, which we've done for a long time in this country, um, not just explicitly on the base of race, but through these other mechanisms like, you know, testing or requiring driver's licenses or uh, uh, any number of things that don't look on their face to be about race, but very much are driven by kind of a secret plan to hurt some people over others. And so what I say in the book is, is that if that's right, that there are a whole lot of different strategies for hurting people um, and and treating them unequally, then we need to have a whole bunch of different strategy, a a wide range of ways of talking about how to reduce those harms. Mm. Uh, And that's what I do in the book is I actually suggest that there's a lot of overlap between um, the traditional way we think of equality and the way we think about sort of fairness uh, and talk about fairness. Um, we have a, a long tradition in this country about um, avoiding excessive cruelty, cruel punishments. And when we do that, we're also preserving people's dignity. And in some ways saying that the cruel treatment of people also affects their, uh, their equal status. So how do we, when there is that big backlash, uh,
0: when we know that that backlash can happen, how does that, in your view, uh, change the way that we should fight for equality, or or so that we might fight for it more strategically?
1: <laughs> right, right. Well, if the fa- if the backlash has happened, let's say we've misjudged. Sometimes, you know, um, um, you know, sometimes we misjudge things, and it may be that um, you know, thinking about your your the situation about uh, same-sex marriage, it's possible that in the early '90s we weren't quite ready for it in the way that we were we are now culturally, right? and politically. Um, and so let's say you misjudge things and then there's a huge backlash that, that backlash that comes down. Well, then you gotta chip away at it with as many different tools as you can. And sometimes you have to make arguments about fairness. So what, what activists did in that period uh, after the backlash was to try to, to chip away in, 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 in certain domains like to try to improve the ability of uh, same-sex parents using arguments about fairness um uh and 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 other rights uh, rights to family control um uh, and not explicitly about marriage right um to try to chip away that and they had some success in some progressive jurisdictions and so forth and the hope is that at some point you get enough positive wins that you can make broader arguments when the time is uh time is right so a lot of the alternative strategies i talk about are about that 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 if you find yourself hunkered down and you and you are in a tough spot then sometimes you can make fairness arguments um as alternative arguments and kind of build a movement and build a body of arguments that will set you up to make broader arguments about equality so you're really almost speaking to
0: it almost sounds like your audience for this book is the person who's working at the civil rights organization and is like how do we advance this cause over the next 40 years and like what are the different steps that we need to take you're talking about hey building your argument about fairness and about this and that and and doing it piece by piece in that way?
1: Yeah, I think part of the audience certainly um, is, uh, you know, the activists uh, and and some of the lawyers, uh, but also I think that there are people who, um, let's say on the progressive side of things, are, you know, hitting the streets, they're active on social media, uh, uh, they they, they see things in terms of equality first and uh, only in these other ways as second or third arguments. Um, The message is also for them, to, to To think hard about how they're sort of um, talking about the problem, right? Um, and um, sometimes it's important to talk about problems in this frame of equality because it has this sort of very powerful moral character, right? Um, uh, when we when we when we talk in in these terms about equality, we're really saying that we're denying some somebody uh, equal status. Yeah, their personhood. Uh, and, absolutely, in personhood. And, and we're also, I think, implying that there's something very, very important at stake, some, usually some set of social goods that somebody has not been able to access, like marriage right, or education or something like this. But not every situation is like that either. So uh, we have a lot of situations where people are being treated differently in contexts where we, uh, say, traditionally allow states to treat people differently. My, my biggest example that runs through the book are people who are either charged with crimes um, or they've been convicted of crimes and they're already in prison. And uh, people there are treated differently all the time. And we accept that they're treated differently from people who are on the outside, right? But does that mean that they should be uh, degraded?
0: I, I don't know that I fully accept that, but <laughs> yeah. I, th- th- there are certainly cases where, uh, you know, people, uh, there are rights denied to folks in prison that that I believe should not be. Um, and I would say in general, I feel that folks, I, I would feel that our Criminal justice system is too punitive in that way, right. you know. Right. When I don't think it should cost uh, someone in prison twenty dollars to make a phone call to their family, uh, <laughs> right? But uh, uh, and and I think that most people, if you explain that to them, I think a large number of Americans would agree with me. But I I, I don't want to uh, derail you. Please continue.
1: With Not mind. at all. Well, I think this is a great example, right? We do we do impose a lot of uh, conditions and fees and things on people who are incarcerated. That if you have a very broad notion of equality, so let's say you're on the more progressive side of things, you're going, to see, uh, you're going to see that that treats poor people, people who are people of color, who are behind bars in ways that are different and perhaps not justified, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you see the world that way, then we should be demanding um, that the state answer some tough questions. Like, why, why do you have to make them pay for the phone call? Why do you have to make them pay for their own bed sheets? Why, you know? Mm-hmm. I think these are legitimate ways to think about equality. But that's not necessarily always the best form of the argument to get people to take it seriously. So mm-hmm. if you're talking to the prison authorities, or you're talking to uh, the warden, or you're talking to the, the state legislators or the governor who has their hands on the levers of power, those arguments from the equality standpoint aren't always going to be the most powerful. Uh, if they don't accept your premises that that these uh, this is the, the, the best way to think about uh, those conditions uh, then some other argument might be better. So uh, it, it might be that at times a fairness argument feels a little softer because it's not as um, it, it's not as transformative. It's not as threatening. Right. It may be that all you're asking is, is that they have some fair shot at something or they've got a, um, uh, the ability to kind of um, ask questions or be heard before something happens to them. Uh, that sounds a little bit milder, but might be able to preserve their dignity or their or their rights uh, in some uh, less threatening way. So uh, on the one hand, I-, I wanna see if
0: I can, uh, you know, chew up and spit back out your <laughs> what, what I think your, your argument is, um, which is that, you know, we should be strategic when we're trying to achieve these goals. And it sounds like you would urge the criminal justice reformer who is trying to improve conditions in the prison uh, to be strategic about it and think about the person who they're talking to and think about what can be achieved Practically, and and that's the title of your book is practical equality. Is is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, my the flip side of that, though, that's a, that's a positive way to frame the argument. Uh, a negative way to frame it is that, and I'm sure you've encountered this. So I want to hear your your answer to it. I, I don't. Uh, you know, uh, forgive me if if uh, if you've heard this before, but it, a negative way to frame it is that hey, you should set your sights lower. You shouldn't set your sights on uh, the principle that you believe in and the and the thing that people actually need, you should ask for something smaller because uh, that's all you're going to get. That's all that the person who holds the power is going to give you in In the case of the warden or right. for fear of upsetting the uh, folks out there who are going to be irrationally offended by your goal, right, who don't understand it.
1: Right. And
0: it occurs to me that the counter argument would be that that gives those people Uh, an enormous amount of power right that uh, then you're uh, before you even begin you're subordinating yourself to the opinion of let's say in some case bigots right if we're talking about say racial equality or or an issue like that uh, you're literally saying oh well the bigots won't like that so let's be careful right and you know that's that's a that's a difficult thing to ask. I find myself torn between that when I'm just crafting an argument for my television show, right? I'm like, well, Hey, I want to make sure I'm, I'm speaking to all Americans when I say this thing. And I want to make sure that, you know, every single person who watches this is going to have a, uh, you know, is going to have something to think about and is going to take it in. And I don't want to unnecessarily push people away, but at the same time, wait, I don't want my message to be controlled by the worst people out there. (laughs) Right. or, Worst is the wrong, worst is the wrong uh, word, because I'm not trying to uh, uh, frankly assign a moral judgment to, right. the,
1: uh, to the folks who have the furthest to go, right? Right. I, I think that um, you know, my response would be that uh, we have to be sophisticated uh, in tailoring our arguments. Um, it's true that sometimes you're talking to a very wide audience, in which case you're gonna have to make some choices. Right? Do you go with the, the strongest, most powerful framing of things? Which might be the equality argument, um, um, or do you choose another one uh, uh, because you've decided that that's going to be more effective, even if you lose some of that that punch, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, the sophisticated part of the of the message too is is that sometimes um, you have to look at who you're talking in front of. You know, the, what you're arguing in front of a judge will be different than how you're talking to your fellow activists, right? So um, here's my example. Um, here's a real-life example from the Florida context. I don't know if you followed um, this uh, amazing thing that happened in Florida, but um, Florida for, for years was one of the worst in terms of disenfranchising people who are com- convicted of crime. Yeah, and for, goes, formerly incarcerated. incarcerated, yeah. Absolutely, and this goes way back to that period that we talked about, right, post-Reconstruction, and it's all wrapped up with um, slavery and um, uh, keeping African-Americans down. Yeah, these were uh, Jim
0: Crow laws that were still on the books, preventing uh, former people who had been formerly convicted of a crime from voting for the entire rest of their lives. And it was like almost explicitly racist laws that were just still still being enacted or still being held in Florida and other states.
1: Absolutely. And Florida is very clever because what they did was they, they didn't mention race in the law. Um, they just expanded the kinds of crimes. All felonies um, would, would get you to lose your vote. Uh, and then you would lose it for all time um, and you could beg for your vote back, right? Essentially, you could, after you got out of prison, then go before a board uh, kind of controlled by the governor and then ask for your, for your vote back. But mm-hmm. what we saw was a, was a completely unequal pattern, right? For example, uh, what we saw was that if it was a Republican governor, they, they rarely um, uh, gave people their votes back and the rates were very low. Uh, if you had a Democratic governor, well, then they were much more aggressive in, in giving people their votes back. So you had that sort of partisan pattern. You also saw some disturbing things in the hearings. So you actually saw people kind of um, suggest how they might vote. Like, you know, oh, you know, if you give me my vote back, you know, I might vote for the current governor. Um, as a you know, wow. as a way of, and it's this is ridiculous. This is you know, this your right to vote should not turn on right. Yeah. Um, their prediction of of what your political well, view and how
0: is. many people are even going to this panel to do this process, right? And and yeah. who are still being infran- disenfranchised because I assume you got to file your application. I bet there's a fee. You got to go down to the courthouse. You got to do all those things, which you know also serves to disenfranchise people who maybe don't have the means to get to the courthouse and uh, et cetera, right? I, I can imagine.
1: No doubt. And 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 so, but that situation also illustrates that there are a whole bunch of different kinds of problems with that regime, right? There's a fairness problem. Uh, for instance, um, people might not have enough notice about how to proceed with getting their votes uh, back. Um, they, um, it turns out that th- this is a purely discretionary process they had. So it means that the governor could say no or the board could say no, and they wouldn't even have to give you a reason for why they said no, Mm. right? These are all fairness ways of thinking about the problem. There's the equality way of of thinking about the problem, which is why a lot of activists were attracted to the issue. They saw how this regime disproportionately hurt African-Americans, poor people, uh, et cetera, right? Um, And then there's a free speech way of looking at the problem, which is that um, your fundamental right to vote should not turn on, right, how how the state thinks you're gonna vote or 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 what wow. values or agenda you have, right? That's totally antithetical to what we think about when we think about the First Amendment. So that's a great example where there's a bun, there's a menu of options in front of you as an activist or as a policymaker or even as a concerned citizen. And which of those arguments are you gonna are you gonna front load? Kind of depends on who you're talking to. And it turns out that um in front of a federal judge, the most um, powerful way was actually to push the speech argument, and and uh, activists were able to convince a federal judge to say, for the first time in the country, that a regime like that actually raises free speech problems. Okay, mm. um, even though in a previous case, uh, a federal judge said there weren't any equality problems with that because um, the the regime didn't explicitly single anybody out in terms of race right, Uh, Mm. or sex or anything else, you see. Um, So this tells us that sometimes the the way that, say, lawyers think about equality can hamstring um, the kinds of solutions that we're able to come up with, whereas if we shift gears a little bit, say speech or fairness, we can sometimes deal with the the problem. If you turn to how the activists were talking about this issue in the streets, they decided that the best way to think about it was uh, uh, mostly about speech, and fairness that it really was not really fair for people to lose their vote um to have to kind of run through this kind of uh byzantine process and then to have so few people get their votes back and they were able to convince a huge number of people in florida to pass this referendum that restored in at least in theory the voting rights of like 1.3 million people yeah um, so you did the, see the, that right
0: the, yeah i did see that and that was one of the the i mean i've Talked about felony disenfranchisement on our on our show many times. And so that was an incredibly encouraging uh, result, although now the uh, the legislature there, I believe, has imposed all sorts of restrictions on that right. And I believe that the uh, the people who want to take advantage of that folks who are formerly incarcerated who want to vote now have to pay onerous fees if they want to vote. Uh, which, like, in, in effect, re disenfranchises them because obviously, so few folks who have been in prison for years are able to pay large fees.
1: Right. Yeah. There's been a there's been a a trend in uh, recent decades. The Republican Party tends to want to clamp down on uh, access to the franchise, whereas at least lately, the Democrats have been more interested in opening things up. Right. And so, the Republican-controlled le- uh, state legislature did do what you have uh, described, which is to try to use the f- the fees uh, and fines, uh, as the hook for kind of, um, uh, disenfranchising people all over again. Now that's still in the litigation. Um, and mm-hmm. so activists have had to shift gears again in terms of the kind of arguments that they're using. And, and a lot of the arguments that have been, um, gaining traction involve being faithful to this language that was passed by, by the yeah. voters. So you're saying that we should, uh,
0: when we're trying to make these changes, um, in addition to thinking about equality as a north star, look at these other values that Americans share, such as fairness, um, and make those arguments as well. Because often those might go down easier, but have the same result. It's a little bit of a feint, and say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna put put forward the fairness argument now,
1: right? Right. That's right. And, and, and what I say, though, is, is, is think of it as a two step process. Right. If you're someone who has a very broad notion of equality and, you know, you're you're you consider yourself a progressive and you're and you really see th- a lot of issues within this frame, then it's OK to keep keep doing that. Uh, I'm not asking anybody to change fundamentally the way, the way they see the world. But to, but to, but if you run into trouble, if you run into um, uh, obstacles, you can't kind of run over. Uh, and you need to convince someone who is a centrist or moderate, someone who has their hands on lever of power, uh, the second judge on a three-judge panel, a governor who doesn't share your broad view of equality, then you might need to shift gears. And that second step might be that you at least tactically, right, start to talk about the problem in a slightly different way uh, in that context. Um, uh, There's kind of of a couple of different moments where that might be necessary. So one is that the, t- that the that the, that there isn't a movement at your back, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, there were there was a time when um, uh, there wasn't a robust um, movement uh, for African American rights, uh, just as there was a time when there wasn't a robust movement across the nation uh, for um, for gay rights. Um, and you know the jury is still out whether we have or can come up with a broad scale movement in terms of. Uh, immigrants rights right that's mm-hmm. sort of a question that's still out there but if the wind is uh, if it, the wind is at your back then go nuts right I mean that's the moment when you should be as expansive <laughs> as you can right If you yeah. see the world primarily in egalitarian terms but a lot of times that's not the world that that we face a lot of times you know um, um, people don't you know you're at the vanguard you're 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 battling um, during Jim Crow years of 1930 so some of my examples come out of the 1930s and 1940s, before there was a civil rights movement. And in the places like the Deep South, in the places where, in the context where you're trying to convince a mostly conservative institution like the Supreme Court, right, the fairness argument uh, or an argument about uh, the right to counsel, something like that, that was the way to to, to get people to to be willing to see the inequities there and to do something about it. Uh, and when, when, if you, if they talk primarily in terms of, uh, black equality, white equality, uh, they would have been shut down.
0: Can't the things go hand in hand? Because, you know, I think about in the Jim Crow years. Uh, so for instance, you know, on the one hand, I, I, I see your point. I think about Thurgood Marshall, right. Going down to, uh, there's a wonderful book called the devil in the white grove. I believe about Thurgood Marshall trying to, trying to go down and, uh, you know, get a, Uh, save a man's life who's been falsely accused of of uh, raping a white woman. Um, And, you know, he goes down there and he's like, I'm just trying to stop this guy from getting the death penalty. You know, we're not going to win this case. And that's like the reality. And we're just doing we're just chipping away as best we can, you know. So he's not going down there thinking he's going to, you know, uh, uh, win, uh, you know, win the battle or sorry, win the war. He's just trying to, like, make a little bit of a victory in the battle. Right. But then on the other hand, I think about, you know, the sanitation workers strike. Mm -hmm. Um, for instance, uh, where, you know, famous images of African-American men, you know, holding signs that say, you know, I am a man, right? Just that simple message. I am a man. Uh, And and that being, you know, that, that always stuck out to me as like the, the fundamental uh, cry for equality. Right. And, and not just cry for it, like declaration of equality. Um, And that was, you know, that was the Jim Crow South as well. Right. And, uh, uh I, I think at that time there were now those two incidents were you know decades apart but uh you know at the same time that we're talking about hey like it's not always going to you're not always going to be able to make that argument all at once like that must have been powerful at the time there must have been it must have helped spur
1: that movement and keep it going no no question uh about that uh that's a great example right um of of how context matters um, and also, in a way, role matters, right? The people out on the streets um, are there to kind of change the uh, underlying kind of social and political conditions, right? Where policymakers, the people who are closer to the levers of power, are then able to kind of take advantage of changed circumstances. And so the people on the streets, uh, the people wearing the signs, saying, I think that this is an equality issue. I think this is also an issue about dignity, right? um are um are expressing the kind of full range of the moral concerns uh and uh, and my book is not about trying to constrain that aspect of things i think um that's a necessary component but we have to think about what they're doing and what they're up to um uh they're trying to empower people um to make kind of material gains by passing laws by um making it harder for judges to be callous right uh, to the defendants or the litigants who are pressing these uh, cases in the courts, because there are places where, if you if you if you weren't out in the streets, judges will look the other way because they've always looked the other way, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you you raise the example of uh, kind of Jim Crow criminal justice in uh, places in the Deep South. I'm actually working on a project right now that's all about that, and there are small town judges where where they've done that forever, which is to have you know one day trials. Uh, yeah. Uh, appoint you know, appoint a judge. Uh, excuse me. Appoint a lawyer who has no criminal justice experience. Give him the death penalty. Uh, yeah. And and that you know, people are surprised, but this still this still goes on. Really. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, and you know, if there aren't people out there talking about the issue in very broad terms, showing that you know racial minorities and the poor are still getting kind of the shaft in the criminal justice system you couldn't make some of the more kind of fine grained arguments that you sometimes have to make in court. So that's that, but that's, that's recognizing exactly what you're saying is that the people in the streets have to be making one set of arguments. Sometimes the people uh, in the legislature and sometimes the people in the courts have to make a slightly different set of arguments. I see. Well, we'll be right back
0: with more Robert Tsai. Okay, we're back with Robert Tsai talking about equality and how we achieve it. Uh, what are some examples of cases where this has worked? You must have some where the, uh, you know, the rather than the obvious equality-based argument, a different argument was made to great effect.
1: Uh, absolutely. Um, a really good one is, uh, is, the, is the kind of the litigation of the, uh, the Muslim travel ban. Um, Mm. A lot lot of people um, heard uh, candidate Donald Trump uh, promise, right, that he would shut down Muslim entry to the United States if he was elected president. Um, A lot of people uh, believe that that was uh, a problem of racial uh, discrimination. Uh, One of the first things he did when he got to office was to uh, issue a ban on uh, entry of people from certain countries. Now, he didn't use the word Muslim. He didn't use the word uh, religion. And that complicates things uh, because in the law, um, those differences matter. Um, and so, you know, he was much more sophisticated about how he uh, tried to fulfill this promise. Um, and, and this kind of gave fits to a lot of judges. It, it made it harder for them to uh, to be able to agree to see this as an equality problem. Um, instead, um, a lot of judges um, decided to see it as simply a legitimate. Um, uh, effort to deal with the entry of people from countries where uh, our government was having difficulty getting kind of um, accurate information about their screening processes, right? This is mm-hmm. the explanation that the administration's lawyers gave for, uh, uh, for having the ban in the first place. Meanwhile, Donald Trump is right now saying, look, I, I fulfill my promise of shutting down Muslim uh, entry to the United States, right? <laughs> so, right, right. But it was, the
0: sharpest possible delineation between the language of the law and the language of the people who are
1: making the law. Absolutely. And completely frustrating and, and in some ways super outrageous, right? And, and I'm with those who see this issue primarily as an issue of religious equality. I think um, that ultimately what the Supreme Court did um, in upholding his ban was to kind of, you know, wink and say, uh, oh, look, you know, we'll just accept at face value that you're not engaging in religious discrimination, and that, you know, you really are seriously worried about the information you're getting. And we'll just ignore the fact that the countries you picked, at least most of them, were like 97% Muslim. Right? <laughs> That's just a coincidence, right? Yeah. Uh, so, I, so that, I think that decision is a complete travesty. Uh, and it's a stain in our, uh, on our country. That said, Um, I, I, what I do is I point to the fact that there was this difficult, this difficulty in getting people to agree about how to see the problem, at least among people in positions of authority. And, um, what I point to are the the instances that, that we've now forgotten about, which is that some of the judges, uh, who first confronted the early versions of the ban, uh, in Seattle and in other places that when they ran into trouble, um, what they did was that they shifted to the fairness argument and um, that allowed them to agree and to kind of chip away at the ban. So for example, uh, in the first version of the travel ban, it actually applied to people with green cards. So there were like tons and tons of people. I was once a green card holder myself. Um, I'm a naturalized citizen. So um, actually I, I actually was naturalized in Los Angeles after uh, graduating from UCLA. Oh, wow. My my parents finally told me you're not a U.S. citizen. All these years you thought you were, um, you know. Uh, you <laughs> Really? You know, I'll do something about that. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, you, I was you, like, you you grew up believing you were a U.S. citizen for many years. I did. I was like, you know, holy crap! I gotta finally, you know, I gotta finally do something. And and thank God I, I did. Show up at the polling but, place and they're like, yeah, your name's not on the rolls. Uh, <laughs> right. Like, give me a ballot anyway. Um, you know, so. So, you know, uh, but, you know, so I would have been in that category of of people that um, was affected by the original ban. And so there are people, you know, who are visiting uh, relatives or friends out of the country. And and then on a Friday afternoon, they just announced the ban and people started getting yanked off planes. Right. Yeah. And so there are all these people who had signaled that they wanted to be American citizens. They'd started the process. They had deep ties with the country. And yet they were being mistreated in this way. And, and um, a lot of people sensed that this was an equality problem. But, the, but what's cool about this situation is that the judges were able to treat it as a fairness problem. That mm-hmm. this group of people, the permanent residents, the green card holders, had all these expectations about their rights, right? Um, and then suddenly, without any notice, without any chance to be heard, all those expectations were disrupted. And they were yanked out planes and they were kept out of the country. And and so because of the shift to the fairness problem uh, kind of grounds, um, these judges were able to kind of relieve the suffering of this huge group of people, um, and they didn't have to see it as an equality problem uh, in, in in the kind of traditional way that we would. Um, deal with the problem. This might be an obvious question, but
0: what is, what is the difference in your view between fairness and equality? Just because sometimes as you're talking, I'm like, I think I understand it. And then, and then it slips away and maybe our audience feels the same way.
1: Sure. Absolutely. So when when we think about, um, equality problems, what we look, usually look for is, uh, a policy that treats people differently. And oftentimes, and this is, this is where, um, this starts to become a little bit more, uh, legalistic, um, you look for, like, a uh, you know, the state kind of singling somebody out, like purposefully mistreating somebody, discriminating against somebody um, consciously. Um, there's a lot of policies that um, uh, have an effect, right, an unequal effect, right? Um, most policies have an unequal effect on the poor, for example, right, just because of how things shake out. But they But they weren't necessarily written in a way to target the poor. It's just mm-hmm. that's how things shook out. Well, the traditional way that we talk about equality uh, is that um, we don't have a lot of um, kind of remedies for those um, uh, problems where it just happens to be the case that things shake out unequally. We primarily reserve equality for problems where people are consciously mistreating somebody or treating somebody differently. And this is part of the hangup with talking about um, using the equality frame is that sometimes we have trouble identifying right? Purposeful discrimination or mistreatment. Yeah. Um, and that's what happened in the travel ban case was, uh, you know, they, they looked at the use of country of origin and they said, oh, no, you know, they're really not, they don't really have Muslim in mind. They just have, you know, country of origin in mind, you see. Yeah. Um, now, now how is that different from fairness? Well, uh, fairness is a little bit more flexible in lots of ways. And uh, we often don't care about uh, kind of uh, purposeful mistreatment. We just ask whether somebody has um, an expectation to be fairly treated in some way. And sometimes we don't. Sometimes there are things that we do, policies that we have where there's no expectations that there's any kind of process that will happen. But then there are some situations like uh, you have marriage rights or you're living in the country, you might have work rights, where we say that not only do you have those substantive rights, but, we, but, but your rights or your expectations can't be upset Without giving you a chance uh, to know about the possibility they will be changed, mm-hmm. and some opportunity to contest it, right? To kind of weigh in and to and to fight back if you if you decide to do that, and that's how fairness arguments typically uh, typically tend to go. Uh, that's that's how the lower courts in the travel ban case treated the situation involving um, uh, permanent permanent residents and green card holders, right? So,
0: so it's the difference between saying, hey, this is unequal treatment. There's this is religious discrimination. This is racial discrimination. And saying, hold on a second. There's a lot of people who they got their green cards. They followed the process. They did everything that was asked of them. And then they're they they went through security and they're on their way to the plane. And then suddenly they're being kicked off. They're 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 uh, they're abandoned, in, et cetera. Right. Like it's uh, their whole their travel plans are fucked up. People shouldn't be subject to this. sort. Of, that's unfair. Yep. That's like shitty treatment. And that Absolutely. would make anybody imagine if that happened to you. That would make you pissed off Absolutely. regardless of the sort of unequal part of it. And that's a that's a fair point. I've heard that type of argument made about issues like this in the past where you sort of like put discrimination off to the side for a second and say, right. hey, this is like a, a a bad way
1: to treat people. This this is this is unfair. Right. Know? And, that, and, and the way you put it is perfect because the way you just described it, you can still make a fairness argument with a sense of outrage right um, yeah. you're, just, you're just shifting the focus of the outrage. Um, with equality arguments our outrage is hey, there's a group of people you've singled them out, you've mistreated them. you've shown them that they're unequal right this is this is, this is a, you're degrading their status and their dignity right And the way you put about fairness it's it's hey, you know, you shouldn't have done this. Um, you guys are being jerks. But the out, the focus of the outrage is the process, right? It's the, it's the callousness in terms of how the, you're treating us as widgets, and you know, you know, yeah. and, and, and we 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 deserve to be treated like human beings in the sense that um, you shouldn't mess with our rights and expectations without at least giving us a chance to fight back. Yeah, I remember I
0: have another good example of that. We were talking about like uh, uh, in an early episode of Adam Ruins Everything, we were talking about the criminal justice system and we were talking about how uh, what exactly was the argument. It was that uh, so much of the time judges and juries will make decisions based on their stereotypes of the people uh, in the witness box or on the defense stand, uh, et cetera, right? Um, And how that'll affect the criminal justice system. And you can look at that and say, hey, that unfairly, or sorry, that unequally targets like minorities and this already uh, oppressed group, which is very true. But you can also say to people, hey, hold on a second. We all agree that's not how a criminal justice system should work, right? People shouldn't be making decisions based on these sort of gut reactions. It's supposed to be about what happened in the case, right? And this could happen to you for any number of reasons, just like if they didn't like your face. What if you're an ugly person? What if you're uh you know, etc. Like yeah. anybody could uh could be treated unfairly in this way. And that's like a slightly broader argument that hits a lot of the same points and maybe accomplishes the same goal, uh, but is just hinging on a slightly different, a slightly different part of it.
1: Yeah, this is right. Uh, I think that in certain contexts, like uh, you raised the criminal justice system, uh, fairness arguments are going to have more traction generally in that context mm. than in other contexts, like you know, education most of the time, or marriage, or something like this. Um, Where people broadly have access to it, we don't have, uh, you know, uh, beefs with um, uh, as many beefs with um, uh, kind of uh, kind of individualized treatment. Once someone has been pulled into the criminal justice system, we so long as there's like some legitimate basis for charging them, right? We think we're in a different world most of the time. And uh, in that domain, like the goal isn't to create kind of perfect and equal citizens, right? In the same way in prisons. Most people who are running the prisons and making policy prisons don't think that, that their task is to uh, ensure a perfectly equal society behind bars, right? Instead, they see their goals in much narrower terms. They want accurate results. Uh, they want to um, weed out unfair things that happen. And knowing that, um, sometimes if you shift gears uh, to a fairness argument or a right to counsel argument or something about juries, right? Um, uh, having a fair cross section of juries, like like if you if you shift the argument slightly, you might be able to pull to your side someone who doesn't, you know, share your otherwise very broad, you know, equality based view of the world. I got a good example of that. Um, there was a, a recent case, um, uh, uh, you know, where uh, Justice Roberts was convinced uh, to really go at go on at length about how at times. Uh, in a in a in a criminal case, um, there could be uh, kind of racial uh, racially problematic stereotypes um, that get uh, bopped around. And what happened in this particular case was uh, some poor guy's attorney uh, put on a, a so-called expert, but that expert then um, said a bunch of stuff that hurt uh, his own client's defense. For example, uh, claimed that if you were black. Uh, that you are more dangerous, right? That that there was a risk that you mm. a greater risk that you might reoffend, and this is a hugely dangerous and racist assumption, which yeah. and its own lawyer, uh, you know, elicited from the the expert. Well, most of us would see this as a huge equality problem, as you say. What convinces and outrages Justice Roberts is that he sees it as a as a right to counsel problem. That mm. he 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 says, hey, look. This guy was, in a sense, um, a terrible lawyer, right? Uh, And it it, it violated basic notions of fairness for this guy to be convicted, right? It it affected the accuracy of the outcome um, for him to allow this guy to go on and on. Because what might have happened then, although we're not 100% sure, but there's now a risk that some jurors, you know, latched onto that and said, hey, you know, this expert is talking about how black people are more dangerous. This defendant is black that they actually put him behind bars or gave him a longer sentence uh, in part because of that yeah. uh, racist stereotype. And you see, now it, it only affects that one case at that one moment, so it's a very narrow outcome. But that's also, that's also a win in the sense that that's a win that can be built upon by people right, who have broader views of equality. You can take that and you can try to run with it uh, and you can try to get some policy changes perhaps Uh, You can um, try to expand um, that rationale that um, a very conservative justice, you know, agreed to and wrote the decision about uh, into other contexts if you if you if you work hard at it.
0: Yeah. And so I assume that you would put this forward as like, hey, this is a this is a path that folks who care about equality could use when arguing in front of our new Supreme Court, which is, uh, you know, a lot different in makeup than it used to be. Uh, But do you think it has a chance against, you know, when you look at uh, the folks who are, you know, petitioning the court on the other side of these issues, right, are often making sweeping arguments, right, based on uh, their own principles um, about uh, about equality, uh, you know, about how they see the world. Right. Um, And do you think that sort of that, you know, that sort of uh, incremental chipping away? Uh, of hey, we got John Roberts to agree with us on this narrow point, and then maybe someone will, will be able to push the ball forward again in about ten years, right? Does that have a chance of uh, you know bending the long arc of history the way we want it to when uh, there are other forces that are bending it so hard in the other direction?
1: I, I think it depends on the uh, on the issue in the moment. Um, uh, so for for some issues and at, at some moments, it can work. I mean, one of the things I'm writing about right now, is um, what, uh, what lawyers and activists who are kind of penalty uh, abolitionists did uh, between the 1980s and kind of up to this moment, uh, which has generally been pretty um, conserved and pretty awful uh, uh, for people who at least faced the, the possibility of being executed. Mm. And they had to kind of uh, retreat to a fairly uh, narrow position, but then they kind of maximized all their arguments that they could and what yeah. they were left with, with w- are, are arguments about how um, uh, the right to counsel um, means that you have an effective, a minimally competent lawyer, uh, and so you shouldn't have a lawyer who's asleep, you, should, you shouldn't have a lawyer who's drunk, you shouldn't have a lawyer who doesn't know anything about criminal law, right? You, sh- um, you shouldn't have a lawyer uh, who uh, talks about you in racist terms uh, and basically says, I hate my client, uh, you know, but here I am defending him. Th- it, and, and what these activists and lawyers did during this very conservative period was to use these narrow arguments of, about right to counsel or fairness. Like, what does is, what is fundamental fairness require uh, in a trial where someone is facing the death penalty? Um, and they showed how unequal, actually, the death penalty system was, right? That it still ended up singling out poor people um, and uh, racial minorities for death row. And so, for example, in Georgia... Uh, uh, you know, at one point it was like, um, despite the fact that most, uh, something like 65% of, of victims of crime are African-American. Uh, at one point in the early 90s, um, uh, something like uh, uh, 16 of 18 or 14 of 16 of people actually executed uh, for crimes uh, were uh, African-Americans who killed wow. a white person. Wow. So so these, but, but what they did though was to show that there is um, inequality but they use these vehicles that were narrower in order to kind of build the broader case, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so it kind of depends on the issue and depends on the moment. And and I think that they were very much able to kind of um, put the death penalty, for example, at this moment where we are now, where it's almost practically abolished in terms of carrying it out that uh, the number of people that are put on death row have dwindled over the years. Um, A lot of people who, say they're for it in the abstract, don't want to be responsible for carrying it out. <laughs> right. uh, so, uh, but that's human nature, but it's good that we now know that. And so we've got a lot of these laws on the books, but through this advocacy essentially, right? Yeah. Um, um, we're trying to the point where only a few counties across the country are responsible for most people on death row. And in that way, you know, wow. uh, yeah, yeah. In that way, that puts us closer to, to, to most other, uh, other civilized uh, countries.
0: And when I think about, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, those chipping away arguments really do work. Um, uh, You can you can make a large change through small arguments that uh, appeal (laughs) to the uh, folks in power over and over again. It's not the only way that you can make change. And sometimes it's not enough, but it is like a tool in our toolbox that we should
1: not ignore. That's a great way to think about it is that. Most problems of inequality, especially if you think that they're structural in nature, um, there's a lot of complicated things going on. And if that's right, that there's a lot of complicated things uh, going on, then we should use every single tool that we might have at our disposal to, uh, to chip away in all these different ways. And if we have enough success instead of a bunch of failures, right? Yeah. Because if you get a bunch of failures, that's the worst kind of thing that could be uh that we could get for for equality that's that will really set us back but if we can get a bunch of small wins even then the occasional big win uh that's really what we should be aiming for Well, I thank you so much for coming on the show to talk to us about it absolutely thanks so much for having me
0: Well, thank you once again to Robert Tsai for coming on the show. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you for listening. I want to thank our producer, Dana Wickens, our engineers, Brett Morris and Ryan Connor, our superstar researcher, Sam Roundman, Andrew W.K. for our theme song. I am Adam Conover. You can find me on social media at Adam Conover and at adamconover.net. And until next week, we'll see you on Factually. Stay safe and keep those hands washed, everybody.